KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Greg Gonsalves will talk about how big pharma profits from COVID vaccines while the global South waits. Greg teaches at Yale School of Public Health. He's been an AIDS activist for 30 years, and he's also a MacArthur genius. And our TV critic, Ella Taylor, will talk about Bloodlands. That's a really good new thriller from the BBC, playing now on Acorn, which is an Amazon Prime channel. It's set in Northern Ireland 20 years after the Good Friday Agreement, which ended the troubles between the Catholic Republicans and the Protestant Loyalists in Northern Ireland. The story opens when traces of the past return and threaten to revive old hatreds. But first, our Washington political update. And for that, we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson, editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today at home in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, we are taping this on Wednesday, the day when Joe Biden is finally announcing his infrastructure proposal. He calls it the American Jobs Plan. Uh, how big is it, and what's in the final version that he's presenting to Congress? Well, it's uh, by American standards, it's pretty damn big. It uh, is, uh, I think, a little shy of $3 billion. And when he creates, uh, submits uh, the second part, it will get closer to $4 billion. This part basically focuses on the things that get lumped under infrastructure, though it uh, covers actually a good deal more than that. It devotes a significant share of uh, the funds to uh, repairing sort of the existing old school infrastructure of roads and bridges, so on, and, and, and also bringing them not only uh, up to snuff, but in some cases, you know, in many cases, endeavoring to make them more sustainable Doing the same with uh, uh, with housing, actually funding uh, what it says will be two million units, either retrofitting or actually constructing new affordable housing uh, that is uh, sustainable, uh, that doesn't uh, use as much energy. So that sort of stuff. It it makes a major commitment to manufacturing in a number of ways funding a major increase in research and development, which has been a lagging, a, a lagging indicator in this country uh, for years compared to the level at which it was funded in sort of the heyday of the American middle class, the 1960s and 70s. It, it, it also focuses on helping create uh, newer industries, using the government's purchasing power to do things like uh, buy electric cars when the they are uh, created in mass, which will uh, is something that will be furthered by the federal government's procurement projects. It really changes the tax structure, not only to fund all of these proposals, which I'll get to in a minute, but also uh, to really seriously combat offshoring, the uh, export of American industry and American jobs, which has been ongoing since some point in the 1970s, actually. It creates a minimum tax for corporations that uh, put their money overseas. They still have to pay uh, what they would be paying, uh, a good share of what they'd be paying if they were registering that money here in the United States. 
it seeks to create a kind of diplomatic initiative, which Janet Yellen is spearheading at the Secretary of Treasury, uh, the Treasury Secretary, that would try to uh, eliminate tax havens. Companies like uh, Apple and uh, others have, you know, shifted profits to other countries, so they really don't have a very big footprint. But nonetheless, uh, they put their money there because the tax rates are lower. So it begins to deal with that. Uh, really uh, a serious attack, much more so than that which the Trump administration waged on offshoring. And as I just mentioned before, it seeks to make this, if not budget neutral, at least fund a lot of these initiatives, basically by raising corporate taxes generally from the 21% to which they were nominally lowered during the Trump administration, even though it turns out uh, after uh, the Trump tax cut went through, major corporations effectively were only paying 8%. uh, To raise that to 28%, and with all of these changes about offshoring and such, offshoring money, I I think this would be significantly higher than the 8%, uh, probably in real terms, 20% or even a little more. Could I just point out, highlight one of my uh, favorite lines in this budget, which is $111 billion for water infrastructure. And that means replacing the lead pipes, 45 billion specifically to ensure that no child is ever forced to drink water in America from a lead pipe again. This obviously he has learned from the Flint experience. That's going to be a lot of digging up the streets of America for the next eight years. Yes, and that is actually, I mean, that's a twofer politically, because not only does it uh, eliminate uh, the widespread use of lead pipes, which uh, can really have terrible health effects, particularly on little children, but it also gives a key union, the laborers, a heck of a lot of work. And that is significant because right now, most of that union's work, or much of much of that union's work is is about installing and maintaining pipelines used by the oil and gas industry. Uh, And therefore, this becomes one way to transition to a better economy, not even green, just safe water, while at the same time creating jobs for workers who would probably in fact be endangered by the move away from fossil fuels. The replacing of lead pipes in America's uh, cities is what you might call shovel-ready technology. Digging up the streets is something we've been doing for a long time. But the striking thing about the whole two or three trillion dollars is that most of it is not what you and I have discussed in the past and which was so important from the FDR example of shovel-ready projects. The uh, new technologies, some of these don't exist yet. No, that's absolutely true. And if you're planning a shift to electric cars, for instance, that requires all kinds of innovation in terms of simply making those cars more affordable. There can be some government subsidies for that. I think there are in this proposal, uh, the creation of, of, of great numbers of charging stations. And by the way, in terms of the water system, That's not the only uh, bit of shared infrastructure uh, beyond roads and bridges that the plan addresses. It it, it really uh, lays out uh, a major focus on uh, updating and making more sustainable the electric grid, which uh, as many people in Texas 
can attest, is not currently in very good shape. It uh, will uh, bring broadband to the areas of the country, uh, disproportionately rural, where it no longer exists. So there, there's a lot of sort of neo-TVA stuff <laughs> mm-hmm. in this, and neo-REA, a Rural Electrification Administration, which was a huge project of uh, the New Deal. What Biden has done here is is uh, redefined infrastructure beyond just the physical infrastructure to include the human infrastructure, I guess he would call it, we would call it workers. It turns out, I saw a chart of the expenditures in order of size and roads and bridges actually come in fourth. Number one is in-home care. Uh, that's not something we in the past have called infrastructure. Well, there is, as you said, human infrastructure. And one of the premises of this is it's not only improving the treatment of actual human beings, but recognizing that the treatment of actual human beings also enhances, as it gets better, the economy at large. So home care uh, certainly reduces the expenses of hospitalization or other form of living in assisted living facilities. Uh, It creates, uh, under the labor stipulations there, more income for current home care workers, which they desperately need. Therefore, it's a component of a war on poverty. Therefore, it's a component of boosting aggregate purchasing power, which is what basically keeps the economy humming along. So there is a tension throughout to uh, this this kind of thing, uh, providing more childcare, providing more home care, doing it at livable wages. All of this bolsters the economy. And later on, we're going to see uh, the paid sick days and paid family leave as part of this too. I mean, one of the lessons of the pandemic, of course, is that in the absence of adequate childcare and things like that, uh, many women have simply left the workforce, which is not good for the economy, uh, because they have to take care of their kids and with schools not open, there was no one else to do it. And, 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 and so all of this is connected. And that also brings up a really striking fact that America only goes through major changes like this uh, in times uh, of, of a crisis that has taught them lessons. That certainly was the effect of the Great Depression on the New Deal. And uh, it's the effect not only of four decades of income and wage stagnation, but of the pandemic on what Joe Biden is now rolling out. One of the goals of Biden's infrastructure plan is uh, not only to fight against climate change, but they say to help promote racial equity in the economy. We haven't talked about that part yet. Well, actually, we sort of have in talking about home care. Uh, and home care workers, which is disproportionately a field that is dominated by immigrants and minorities, uh, particularly women. Uh, And once you raise their living standards, then you are sort of backing into racial equity. But that's just one of many components in this. Certainly the economic justice parts of the proposal, the environmental justice, focusing funds disproportionately on poorer, predominantly minority neighborhoods that have been despoiled uh, by the presence of brownfields and uh, oil and gas and coal and and other forms of the fossil fuel economy. Certainly more money is going to them uh, because they have suffered more 
and more money is required. Uh, so in all kinds of ways, in you know, infrastructure, like everything else in America, has sort of gone along the accepted lines of racism. And this proposal uh, attempts to uh, undo that uh, by uh, investing more in, in those parts of America that have suffered precisely from this. So in terms of the traditional infrastructure, we're gonna get 20,000 miles of rebuilt roads. Should we expect 100% of Republicans in Congress to vote against roads for their own districts? Well, if that were separated out as a standalone component, I think you would get Republican support. Coming as it does with all of this other stuff, and with its level of traditional fiscal responsibility by raising taxes on corporations to pay for it, I would be surprised if there are many, if any, Republicans who will end up voting for this. But the strategy of the Biden administration is to probably introduce this first, uh, not with the expectation that it's going to pass a reconciliation with 51 votes in the Senate and, and, and no Republicans, but to sort of let them vote against it and, and then uh, go to reconciliation or lump it together with part two of uh, this proposal, which is more on uh, paid family leave and uh, things that really increase working class prosperity and then move all of that through uh, reconciliation. But Republicans will probably be given the chance to vote against their own district's interests. And then Democrats will have something to talk about in the 2022 midterm elections. They will indeed. <laughs> there was a, a new poll out in the last uh, couple days uh, of Californians from the uh, PPIC, which is the most reliable and largest uh, pollster in California. One of the things they asked about was immigrants. And uh, there was a question as to whether you know, immigrants who fulfill all legal, legal obligations but are undocumented should be allowed to stay and uh, should be allowed to become citizens. It had 85% uh, support among Californians, including 68% of Republicans saying, yes, they should allow, be allowed to become citizens. This isn't just wow. dreamers. This wow. is all the undocumented who in California come to about 2 million uh, residents of the state. And let me just clarify, this yeah. is citizenship, not just residency? No, residency had 75% Republican support. Citizenship had 68% Republican support. As historians, we're very interested in the historic nature of the proposal that Biden made today. Many, many times over the last years, you and I have compared uh, the, our present lamentable situation with the world of FDR and CNN reports every day that he works in the Oval Office, President Joe Biden stares across from his desk at the portrait of Franklin Delano Roosevelt he selected to hang above his fireplace. His aides have read biographies and historic accounts of FDR's presidency, and Biden has consulted a panel of presidential historians in the East Room about FDR's achievements. And then on Tuesday, this is my favorite part, 
descendants of FDR, including his grandson, and descendants of the cabinet of the first New Deal, wrote a letter to Biden commending his focus on, quote, the urgency of big, bold action to create jobs to help America build back better, close quote. This is, you know, his grandson, James Roosevelt Jr., Harold Ickes, somebody named Henry Wallace, who's another... From our perspective, there is a lot here that's like FDR, but there's also some key differences. Well, yes, much of the New Deal had to be passed through a United States Senate uh, where a lot of the Democrats were Southern segregationists. So they excluded from uh, the uh, newly created benefits of the New Deal, from Social Security, from minimum wage, from uh, the ability to unionize agricultural workers and domestic workers because in the South, they were heavily black. So in a sense, the New Deal had to be slowly expanded over decades to rectify that. And Biden is going further by what we were just talking about in terms of environmental justice proposals, you know, but there are still lots of things that the New Deal did that uh, have yet to be emulated, though he supports them. For instance, it will take the passage of the PRO Act, which has already passed in the House, uh, it'll take the passage of that in the Senate to really recreate uh, the spirit and letter of the original National Labor Relations Act, which allowed workers to bargain collectively. So, you know, there's still a long to-do list. And uh, speaking of history, just one historical note. We're speaking on Wednesday. Today turns out to be the anniversary of the day in 1968 when LBJ announced he would not run for re-election. This was shortly after he nearly lost the New Hampshire primary to Minnesota Senator Gene McCarthy, who was running a lonely campaign as an opponent of the, a Democratic opponent of the war at Vietnam. He had, he had basically no support within congressional Democrats, but he did have thousands of young people who went door to door in New Hampshire. They were told to be clean for Gene. I believe you were one of those kids who were clean for Gene. I was, and Gene was expected to get something like 10% of the vote in the New Hampshire primary. If I recall correctly, he got 42% of the yes. vote. Yes. And on March 31st, I actually happened to be home with my parents, except that they kept going down to Palm Springs on weekends. And I had gone down with them for one weekend, along with uh, their best friends, uh, the Matthews. And we were, if I recall, uh, just before we were to drive home to L.A., uh, we were going to stop and get dinner at some restaurant. Johnson's speech. Uh, in which he announced his withdrawal, was on the radio. And that was a surprise ending. uh, He had not let anyone except, I think, Hubert Humphrey and his family know that he was going to withdraw. And when we got to the restaurant, he had been through most of the speech. He hadn't finished yet. And this this was the ending of the speech. And I somehow sensed, maybe because I had been in New Hampshire, that he was headed towards that kind of announcement. And so I said, wait, let's not go in the restaurant yet. Let's wait to hear the end of the speech. (laughs) Uh, And uh, if I had been that, uh, had 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 that level of foresight going forward in my life beyond age 18, which is what I was at the time, I would be hailed as a prophet everywhere. I'm I'm, (laughs) I'm very seldom that 
good on predicting what's about to come. But I was very good that day. Johnson announced his withdrawal, chiefly because it was clear uh, from his own sources that he was about to lose the Wisconsin primary, yes. almost two to one, which he did. And uh, that which was going to be this was speech was on a Sunday. The Wisconsin primary was uh, the following Tuesday and he didn't want to do that. So he withdrew and uh, we sat in the car and we heard that. LBJ quitting his own reelection campaign was probably the greatest victory of an anti-war movement in American history. I can't think of another one where a president was driven from office by opposition to a war. Historians have discovered that it was long before March 31st, 1968, that LBJ first started thinking about not running for re-election. He had drafted that an announcement of that that was supposed to be in his State of the Union speech to Congress on January 17th, three months before that, but he never delivered those lines in that State of the Union speech. And I have a theory, which appears in a recent book on LA in the 60s, that LBJ began thinking about run, not running for re-election uh, back in June 1967, after the now legendary Century City anti-war protest and police riot where the LAPD attacked and beat uh, 10,000 marchers. That was where LBJ launched the start of his re-election campaign at this glamorous new Century Plaza Hotel. Uh, the city fathers, led by Mayor Sam Yorty, declared the event a triumph. But LBJ must have seen that if he could not hold a campaign event in Los Angeles, where he'd gotten millions of votes in 1964, without provoking uh, police riots and thousands of people in the streets, he was going to have trouble everywhere running a campaign. So my theory is that Los Angeles is the beginning of LBJ's thinking about pulling out of his reelection campaign. It could well have been. And it also demonstrated that uh, the LAPD was capable, if enough hatred was aroused in their ranks, of, of beating up a largely white crowd, not simply uh, their customary behavior of beating up African-Americans, Latinos, and what have you. They could riot under a range, I won't even say provocations, under a range of their own biases, which extended beyond simply racism. Something we've seen in the last few months in Los Angeles. We have indeed. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The arrival of multiple vaccines against COVID-19 in less than a year after the virus's emergence is sort of a miracle. But there's nothing miraculous about the failure of donor nations, along with pharmaceutical and biotech companies, to prepare for and mount a global vaccination campaign. For comment, we turn to Greg Gonsalves. He works on epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. He's been an AIDS activist for 30 years. He writes regularly for The Nation about the pandemic. He's also a 2018 MacArthur Fellow. Greg Gonsalves, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, 400 million doses of vaccine have been delivered so far, and 
residents of wealthy and middle-income countries have received about 90% of them. Under current projections, the rest of the world will have to wait years. But the news last week was that the United States is going to send millions of vaccine doses to Mexico and Canada. Is that the sort of thing you think we need more of? So, no, not at all. <laughs> the point is, is that we need a global strategy to, to scale up vaccination across the, the world quickly and broadly. Um, and dumping um, extra product in Mexico and uh, Canada next door is, is, not a, is not a solution. It's not strategic. Um, it's an afterthought. And we need to do much, much better than that. Well, let's talk about the patent for the heart of the vaccines. I read that on March 30th, the patent will finally be issued for the discovery that lies at the heart of existing COVID vaccines. It was the work of a scientist at the National Institutes of Health Lab. Who funds the National Institutes of Health? You and I do. American taxpayers do. So the United States government will control that patent uh, the New York Times page one article this week that quoted you also said the United States could, quote, force companies to publish vaccine recipes, share their know-how, and ramp up manufacturing. Uh, has that ever been done before, and, and how would it work? So th there are many times where the government has decided we need something, and um, we need it uh, at a scale and at a speed um, more quickly than you would like to deliver it. Um, and for lots of wartime materials, um, this has been done with the Defense Production Act or other kinds of um, sections of the US code like 1498 have been engaged to, to help um, the government procure, buy and procure and produce what it needs for, for, for various emergencies. Um, you know, in the context of the COVID-19 vaccines, you know, the patents are one part of the story, but we also need the technical know-how of the company. So they're not going to be um, drag kicking and screaming. They're going to be incentivized with lots of money, um, probably from the federal government to open up um, more voluntary licenses to allow public, uh, to, to allow broader production across the world, rather than these sort of piecemeal one-off deals between a company and, a, and a, a company in the US and a company in India or somewhere else. Um, but again, this needs to be done at scale, needs to be done strategically with a comprehensive vision of quick scale up of vaccination around the world, not just um, uh, as an afterthought about the American uh, uh, endeavor to get everybody vaccinated from coast to coast. On another front, Johnson & Johnson, that's of course the company with a vaccine that requires only one shot instead of two, has said it will provide the vaccine on a not-for-profit basis for, quote, as long as the world continues suffering from the pandemic, close quote, that sounds great, but of course it's not quite the same as sharing their vaccine recipe. Yeah, again, you know, the point is, is that having sort of sweetheart deals between uh, an originator company and its chosen licensee somewhere else, it's not about, is, is, is about um, uh, putting your words out to market and finding a, somebody who will pay you what you want for, to license your technology. The point is, this is a public health emergency. And so all the companies need to be on the line to basically offer their know-how um, um, with resources from not just the American government, but any rich government that can put money on the table to scale up worldwide, because it's in our all in our collective interest to do so. Um, but doing it company by company, contract by contract, inch by inch, you know, second by second, it's going to take too long uh, to, to do the scale up. We need economies of scale. We need we need a, a massive um, mobilization here, not sort of like 
business as usual, which the companies are, are, are far are far happier to, to deal with. The defenders of big pharma say pressuring companies to share patents patents will undermine innovation. What do you say? Oh, please. That's what I say. <laughs> you know, they said this all along. You know, they said in the 60s that the Kefauver Amendment at the FDA, which told them that they had to prove their drugs actually worked, was going to bankrupt the pharmaceutical industry. And we had a great flourishing in the 60s, 70s, and 80s of, of big pharma. Um, you know, during the late 1990s, early 2000s, AIDS activists were clamoring for generic tr- AIDS drugs um, for, for low- and middle-income countries. The company said, you will destroy innovation in the global pharmaceutical market for antivirals. Well, no. We have a thriving antiretroviral, a far thriving antimicrobial market, at least for antivirals, from Desivir, one of the drugs approved for, for treating COVID-19, actually comes from the same company that, that warned us about, you know, pressuring them around the generic production uh, for HIV drugs. So we wonder how much are COVID vaccines worth to big pharma? I saw a piece at CNN last week that said the government pays Pfizer $20 per dose for their vaccine, and the company expects to take in about $15 billion for its COVID vaccine by the end of this year, with a profit margin of nearly 30%. 30% seems high to me, but Pfizer's defenders say the company did not take any taxpayer money to develop its vaccine and assumed all the risk with a $1 or $2 billion investment in research and development, and therefore they they deserve a 30% profit. What do you say to that? Well, I'll say, let's look at the basic research that went into developing your vaccine, and then let's talk about how much you put into that. And they won't be able to say it. They'll say, we we developed this vaccine product and we took it to market with minimal um, U.S. taxpayer support, but all the formative research um, you know, was funded by NIH, at least in part. Um, so the idea that they are an independent research and development um, engine without any sort of um, uh, reliance on uh, the U.S. taxpayers' um, generosity over the past you know, 50, 60 years is, is ludicrous. Um, and so, again, 10% is a lovely profit. 20%, 30%, you might want to say it's profiteering rather than profit, um, particularly when they're, they have the rest of the world over a barrel about access to their vaccines. They don't get to decide who lives and dies. You know, a 10% profit is still quite a bit of money for them to, to, to give back to their shareholders while uh, it allows many other people to live around the world. You've said we need a comprehensive global strategy rather than the piecemeal proposals which are on the table right now. What would that look like? Well, we need to think about the vaccines that are in the that are already uh, under emergency use authorization in the U.S. Um, ones that um, are coming along um, uh, down the pipeline, like the Novavax vaccine, um, and start to sort of lay out which ones would be most appropriate for which setting, and how we um, will go about scaling up. Um, each of them in turn. What kind of um, industrial facilities do we need in terms of physical plant? What kind of commodities, uh, chemicals, vials do we need? And how are we going to deal with the supply chain management for all of those? Um, so that's the the first bit of it, yeah. And I know that India has tremendous capacity to manufacture pharmaceuticals. I assume perhaps other countries will be able to manufacture their own too. Well, India has its own vaccine the Serum Institute vaccine. And I think Johnson & Johnson is, is contracted uh, with a firm to make the J&J vaccine. Um, 
uh, over there. So India, Thailand, Brazil, South Africa, there's lots of countries that have um, domestic pharmaceutical capacity. They need the technical know-how um, from the companies. Um, it's not simply a recipe and you hand it over and you you, you build the same vaccine. It's, it's a much more complicated task. So it needs, you know, hands-on engagement by the companies, but that can be incentivized through um, payments for, for the services rendered, et cetera. And what can you tell us about the Chinese vaccine and the Russian vaccine? Um, I don't know very much about them. Um, but what's interesting is that China and Russia, um, to a large extent, have decided that um, where the U.S. is not going to um, step in, they will certainly do so. Um, and, um, you know, not to be jingoistic, but I don't think from um, their perspective it's done out of generosity. They see it as vaccine diplomacy um, and that. Um, uh, generosity in this context brings goodwill um, and that um, if you want to remember who your friends are, you remember your friends in a crisis. And if the country that gave you a vaccine was Russia or China, um, when push comes to shove the next time on the global geopolitical stage, you, you, need, you need an ally by your side, you're going to remember who your friends and who your friends weren't. And if the U.S. is not willing to supply vaccines to the world, other people will step in and do it. And we've seen Russia and China be willing to do that. Well, goodwill takes me back to uh, American politics. Uh, the drug makers think that the political benefits of the vaccine may be even greater than the profits. Typically, people who take a drug on a daily basis don't know which company produced it. At best, they know the the brand name for the drug. But with the COVID vaccine, everybody knows the names Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson. One drug company sp spokesperson said, there really has been a sea change in the way people perceive the drug companies. They're not seen as greedy big pharma charging outrageous prices. They're saving the world. This is really brilliant PR, close quote. And more important, he said, quote, it may help quiet the recent talk about government action to drive down drug prices, close quote. Do you have any comment? In your dreams, Sarah, in your dreams. The point is, is that um, uh, drugs, there's no, there's an op-ed in the New York Times this week, I think Peter Bach at um, Memorial Sloan Kettering, biologicals. Um, which many of these companies make, um, are in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, so if you happen to have a, a cancer or an autoimmune disease, you could be paying $100,000, $200,000, $300,000, $400,000, $500,000 for, for a year's course of these drugs. They're outrageously priced based on a monopoly model that the companies love. Um, and, you know, yes, we're all happy to be running to the arms of our vaccinators and getting our Moderna or our Pfizer vaccine. The point is, is that they have the rest of the world over the barrel. And while, you know, we may um, be grateful for Johnson & Johnson and Moderna for supplying the vaccines that go into our arms and the arms of the people we love, um, it's basically at the expense of, of, of the rest of the planet. Um, and so um, goodwill, you know, it stops at the borders of the United States. And, um, you know, People people don't have such short memories. People understand that many people can't afford their insulin, um, that they can't afford their co-pays on drugs. Um, many people are uninsured or underinsured and have to deal with uh, steep drug prices on their own. So please, you know, I take antiretrovirals to keep myself alive with HIV for 20, 30 years. I'm grateful to the companies, but being grateful to them doesn't mean they get to decide who lives and who dies. 
And before we let you go, I just want to ask a couple of smaller questions, worries from uh, vaccine skeptics that I know. Um, my next-door neighbor says he wants to wait five years before getting a COVID vaccine because we don't know the long-term effects of the vaccine. What do you say to that? So as you said, 400 million doses of these vaccines collectively have been administered over, over the past few months with remarkably few side effects. Um, you know, one of the important things to, to remember is that um, this was done by the book. Um, many people were worried that President Trump in uh, mid-2020 would look for a way to sort of um, cut corners on vaccine development for a vaccine October surprise, which would help him win the election. Um, the hue and cry from the scientific community was strong enough that the FDA was backed into a corner and had to do it by the book. And so the trial results the requirements for, for getting approval were sent to their uh, external advisory committee, um, which agreed to, to give emergency use authorization to the Moderna vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, um, uh, and, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So um, I wouldn't wait to take the vaccine. Um, I would take it as soon as I could get, get it in my hands. There are plenty of people around the world who would be, you know, who are literally dying to be in your shoes. Um, and so I tell your neighbor, don't wait. Um, you know, because your friends and family love you and want you to be here for 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 the next five years and not be at risk of 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 coming into contact with some variant of COVID nineteen that that um, is more transmissible or more deadly and may may take you off this planet. So, learn about the facts and the science. Go to CDC. Go to NIH. There's plenty of um, independent sources um, for for getting vaccine information. But know that it was done um, with great fidelity to the integrity of the process by most of the companies um, and uh, the NIH and the other trial sponsors, and, and that these vaccines are remarkably effective, and most importantly, remarkably effective. Nobody would have thought we would have had a vaccine by now. Nobody would have thought they've been so effective, and that miracle is a miracle. Another friend is worried that the RNA vaccines could be dangerous because they are a form of gene therapy. What do you say to that? They're not gene therapy. You know, when you think of gene therapy, what you do is you um, engineer genes to, to, to reside in your, your own DNA for, in perpetuity, right? The idea is that, you know, if you can't make a certain protein, you know, your, 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 your altered, your cellular DNA, what they'll do is they'll splice in a gene into a, a blood cell, infuse it in you, and then, you know, you have a, a new functioning gene to, to get rid of um, one that was malfunctioning or didn't have uh, any ability to function given your condition. Um, this vaccine, RNA, doesn't integrate into your DNA at all. Um, it gets into your cellular machinery and allows it for a short time to pump out spike protein, and then it um, uh, disappears on its own. It's not making it's not making fully competent virus. Um, it's making the spike protein at all. And RNA doesn't go into, we're not an RNA species, we're a DNA species. If it was going to get into your DNA and stick around, it would have to be transcribed into DNA and then get in, integrated into your cells. And that's not going to happen. It gets, um, uh, it goes through a round of, of, of translation to protein and, and then its job is done. And I have a third friend who has the opposite kind of of uh, concern. Uh, they don't want the Johnson and Johnson vaccine because it's not as effective. What would you say to that person? The point is, 
is that all these vaccines are remarkably effective at preventing serious disease and illness. Um, the other thing is we don't know. We've, ne we've never seen them head to head, right? We, we don't know if Johnson & Johnson is better than Moderna or, or, or better than Pfizer. The point is they've never put head to head. Just in terms of the, the um, results of that given trial, it was 95 or 87% effective. The point is with vaccines too, we're talking about community protection. Um, yes, you and I are protected from being vaccinated, but it doesn't matter who gets vaccinated with what. The point is, is coverage, right? If you have 10 people in a room and, you know, six of them have Johnson & Johnson and two have Moderna and one has Pfizer and one is um, uh, uh, asymptomatically infected and has the virus, um, the 90 you can probably need most likely to be fine, right? The point is, you, there's safety in numbers, and the more people we get vaccinated with whatever vaccine you can get your hands on, that's 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 key. They're all too close together in terms of what their ability is to 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 stop serious disease and illness and death. Um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't fuss about this one or that one. I'd get whatever one you could get um, as quickly as possible. Greg Gonsalves, he writes about the coronavirus and its vaccines for thenation.com. Thank you, Greg. It's always great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. Same old story, back again. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics thinking about the left. What is there to watch on TV this week while we wait for the pandemic to end? Ella Taylor has some answers. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Hi, Ella. Hi, John. How are you? I'm pretty good. Well, there's a really good new British thriller from the BBC playing now on Acorn, which is a channel on Amazon Prime. It's called Bloodlands, and it's set in Northern Ireland 20 years after the Good Friday Agreement, which was signed in 1998. I'm the historian, so I'm going to give a little history here. The Good Friday Agreement brought an end to the 30 years of violence called the Troubles, which started in the late 60s when Northern Ireland uh, was plunged into a brutal conflict between Republicans who wanted the North to become part of a united Ireland independent from Britain and Unionists who wanted Northern Ireland to remain within the United Kingdom, which had been the case for hundreds of years. Republicans are mostly Catholic. Unionists are mostly Protestant. Both sides had paramilitary groups that fought a kind of low-level civil war. The IRA, the Irish Republican Army, is the best-known paramilitary group. The British Army was also deployed in 1969 and killed a lot of people. Over 30 years more than 3,500 people were killed, the majority of whom were civilians, many killed in random revenge attacks across the sectarian divide. And this all came to an end when Labour came to power in Britain. Tony Blair became prime minister. President Bill Clinton sent George Mitchell to Ireland. The Good Friday Agreement was signed, bringing peace in April 1998, and it's one of the great examples of how a conflict that went back hundreds of years can come to a peaceful conclusion. 
It required, among other things, that paramilitary forces on both sides agree to stop fighting. And that's the background to the plot of Bloodlands, which begins 20 years later. It stars the now famous uh, Irish actor James Nesbitt, um, who has a classic Irish face uh, and also, you know, fairly well-worn over the years. So he's ideal to play this detective who um, is sparked to revive a cold case of a mysterious a set of mysterious disappearances during the period that you describe um, of the Troubles, uh, one of whom was his own wife. And um, so they are looking, they've revived uh, the search for a mur the murderer of his wife and others who is, goes by the name, if he exists, of Goliath, which I assumed was a reference to Goliath, but in fact is um, the name of the enormous cranes uh, of Belfast, which we actually see um, in a kind of sort of dirty old town aesthetic um, in the series. The distinctive thing about this particular crime drama as the detective follows up the case along with his extremely comely um, lieutenant who's played by Charlene McKenna from Peaky's, Peaky Blinders, if people have seen that, is that there is very early on in the season and uh, the way it works at Acorn is that you get either one or two episodes in the first um, week and then every Monday they add a new episode. So all the shows that we're going to discuss today um, work on that basis. There is a very early on a complete reversal of expectations for the crime drama um, in which the detective comes under suspicion himself and starts behaving very erratically. And his sidekick, um, woman detective, starts to smell a rat and becomes increasingly worried. And there are numerous shots of her very worried face um, as the boss that she otherwise um, gets along very well with starts to disappoint her in ways that I won't reveal. Um, the series is executive produced by the same people who made body, the very popular Bodyguard and Line of Duty, at least one of which Line of Duty you can see on Acorn and maybe some early episodes of Bodyguard, I'm not sure. Um, and as they begin, as they um, embark on their search for Goliath, more and more characters are added, added, including the detective's daughter and her medical school professor, um, a very beautiful young woman uh, who may not be all that she seems. It's very hard to give a plot summary of these crime dramas <laughs> without spoiling. <laughs> it is, but we're doing our best. We're doing our best, yeah. And as they do this, the long reach of, of the troubles begins to sort of produce tentacles that reach into this one case. And... Um, as it does, there's some very interesting issues come up of, for example, the continuing community mistrust of the police, which many saw with some justification as being on the sides, side of the British. And also um, a possibility of, if not outright corruption, then um, a transgression of protocol 
by the detective's boss. And as that happens, I mean, it's pretty, uh, it's, it's, the series is done so well that you could just confine yourself to that mystery. But if you think about it, it's also about the ambiguities or the, the dialectic perhaps between carrying out social justice, even of a very, of a very cold case. And on the other hand, keeping the peace in the present. <laughs> um, and uh, the bus really takes a hit for treading that line very, very loosely, as does the detective uh, himself. I have not seen, they've not allowed us to see the final episode in which it all either comes together or all falls apart. The dilemma that faces us as viewers who have now seen three is, I like to think of it as the political versus the personal. It seems like this is a totally political case, that three or four people disappeared and we assume were murdered at the time that the Good Friday Agreement was signed. And it seems like a couple of them were on the Catholic Republican side, and at least one was on the pro-British Northern Ireland side. And the suspicion is that they were all killed because they opposed the agreement. They did not want to put their arms down. And so reopening the case as a murder investigation, the leaders feel, will revive the sectarian conflicts and, and perhaps a return to the troubles. On the other hand, because the wife of the detective is one of the people who's disappeared and we assume also killed, he has a deeply personal interest in this, which becomes deeper and more personal as the second episode unfolds. So the first episode is kind of a conventional, very well-done police one. The second one, the plot really, really blows up and you are gripped to the screen and desperate to see the next episode. Yes, and the, the, the can of worms is made wormier by the fact <laughs> that his wife ha had been a spy herself. <laughs> so uh, that adds to it. Um, but it is at the both at the private level, as you as you say, and also at the the political level, really quite fascinating. James Nesbitt is a kind of late in life superstar actor who also does comedy, which would oh. be hard to believe in this <laughs> series. <laughs> but he has this kind of weathered face of somebody who has not only seen a lot of trouble, but he's also caused a lot of trouble. And um, uh, he stars in another series, a comedy series called Cold Feet, in which he plays a different kind of character altogether as a man of many gifts uh, in his 60s. So that's Bloodlands, the crime drama set in Northern Ireland running on Acorn, an Amazon Prime channel. Can you recommend something that is not about Northern Ireland? Sure, I'll recommend something that's about Wales. <laughs> <laughs> and there are uh, on Acorn a whole bunch of very, very good Welsh um, dramas. Apparently they tend to show, because a lot of these have shown on the BBC shortly before they arrive on ACORN in the United States, that they shoot them simultaneously in Welsh language or, you know, in the various Celtic languages, uh, as well as doing them in English, which is like heroic on the, yes. on the actors' parts. I assume that they're very well compensated for that, but you never know this being Britain. So uh, Keeping Faith is about a small, provincial, extremely scenic, scenic Welsh town in which 
dwell. The titular Faith, who's played by Eva, Eve Miles, an extremely appealing um, Welsh actress who's also been in Broadchurch, and uh, Bradley Freegard, who plays her husband. And they, as, with, as the series opens, we see them uh, settling down to a blissful life. They're both extremely good looking. They have um, two lovely uh, girl children, very cheeky, and a new baby. Uh, and Faith has decided to um, retreat from her job as a lawyer in her husband's family business to be um, a very fun stay-at-home mother. <laughs> She's just a wonderful character, and I'll get to that. The two actors are married in real life, which must have posed them with a real challenge because this series is, is in part about marital collapse. Um, under horrible circumstances, the husband disappears in the very first episode. And she, uh, Faith, is, is suddenly catapulted back into his job because... Uh, it needs to be filled, and also in searching for her husband. Um, and his uh, probity is um, very much challenged uh, as the series goes on. Um, so there's always, in each season, I've actually seen all three. The third season is about to start on April 12th, and it's apparently the final season. Um, in each season, there's a social issue that she has to tackle. Um, in the new series that's opening uh, on April 12th, it's all about the rights of a, um, a small boy to who's very, very ill, uh, possibly terminally ill, to decide whether and uh, how he dies. He's a minor. Uh, but the more powerful aspect, I think, of this series, I don't know whether you agree, John, um, is as a domestic drama and romantic drama, and, and in some ways very much a women's series, because it's, uh, you know, her partner is also a woman uh, in the law firm, and the, her husband's extremely uh, overindulgent mother, who is apparently yes. the cause of all his problems, is also very well played. And she also, uh, as time goes on, she takes a lover who has a pretty checkered career of his own. Don't tell us any more. <laughs> well, I'll tell you one more thing, okay. which, which won't ruin the, uh, the thing. In the, in the new series, the absolutely wonderful British actress Celia Imry, who um, you might remember from the best exotic Marigold Hotel, in which she plays a very randy uh, uh, older older woman who finds love, returns as Faith's estranged mother with a very secret agenda of her own. Um, I think that the the great thing about this is that um, she's that Faith is such a fallible flawed character she's absolutely lovable you really want to spend time with her and have a glass of wine or a beer which she does very frequently <laughs> yes. um, and uh, is also an extremely erratic parent because she's trying to hold it all together so she loves her kids to distraction and they adore her as well as their missing father but she takes extraordinary risks with her family in order to pursue the cases it's i love it i've got to say one of the best things about it i think is the central role that the kids play this is not a detective show where the kids are set aside and she goes out to solve the crime the kids are always there and they're a problem. Like, who's going to take care of the kids in the next scene? They're always keeping track of that. 
Can she drop him off at the grandparents? Can the best friend come and stay overnight while she's out, you know, looking for clues? It is a kind of damsel in distress kind of movie that led in our house anyway. It, we've, we watched the first season to a lot of shouting at the screen, you know, don't go by yourself. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you need a lawyer right now. Why do you, don't talk. So there's uh, a lot of that. And of course, since the kids are so important, you just know that eventually the kids are going to, we're going to be scared to death for the fate of the kids. And, you know, sure enough, in season one, they pull out all the stops and the kids are scared and the mother is in terrible trouble. And so there's a lot of anxiety behind the drama in this. And I, I have to say, a lot of plot. The plot just keeps getting more and more complicated. And the the final episode of season one really has almost enough plot for a whole separate season and leaves you with a cliffhanger that just propels you into season two. So they've been very clever about the way they uh, they constructed it. And I understand it was a huge hit in, in Britain as a result. I think it's, its greatest attribute is that it works in a variety of tones and, and shades. And I think that for women, we, you know, to get someone who's neither a badass, although she can be as needed, nor a woman of virtue, for sure, is very satisfying. So keeping faith on Acorn, an Amazon channel, we have time very briefly for one more. And that is another extremely high-caliber soap opera, only this time the uh, dramatist personae are ultra-Orthodox Haredi Jews, Israeli Jews. Um, and uh, uh, it's just a wonderful, uh, it, it's a, what seems like an impossibly arcane subject for a series because it's become a major hit in several countries, so much so that after the first two seasons, they added a third, which uh, I'm now making my way through. Um, its principal character is a young man um, uh, named uh, Kiva, who um, is a bit hapless and keeps getting himself into all sorts of difficulties. He's played by the very dishy Israeli, young Israeli actor, Michael Aloni. Um, and uh, he's got side curls and, and the whole bit. Um, and uh, so does his father, uh, Reb Shulam. And although Kiva is the main actor in these seasons, his father completely walks away with every frame of the movie because he's an incredibly complicated character who, on the one hand, uh, will move heaven and earth to try and save his baby granddaughter, and I won't say how she gets into trouble. Um, and on the other hand, bullies and beats his own hapless brother, who is just a you know total loser in life. He's played by... Um, Sasson Gabay, who, if you've seen the equally wonderful movie, uh, The Band's Visit, he played the leader of the Israeli, the Egyptian orchestra, marvelous actor. Um, and it's what it does. Uh, many, you know, the Israeli filmmaking community is by and large secular. And for many years, if they made it, if, if there were any reference to the Orthodox, ultra Orthodox community, it was largely a hit job. Um, and uh, this is quite the reverse. It's one of a whole bunch of new series of films that try to understand the Haredi community from within. So these are people with flaws like everybody else, except that they're struggling with. Um, 
with all these flaws in the context of very, very rigid hierarchy of, of rules which get progressively uh, loosened. Again, it's a, a series of many, many tones and, and colors. Um, and uh, having been a bit skeptical at the beginning, um, I've become completely engrossed in it, as have a bunch of my friends who are neither Jewish nor Israeli as I am. <laughs> um, it's in Hebrew, but with uh, English subtitles, and uh, I recommend it highly. Season three has just started on Netflix. Um, and uh, Kiva makes a fateful decision that then eddies out into his own family in ways that are both hilarious and uh, and very serious. It's so popular did it become on Netflix that I understand that there's an American version in the works. Um, I'm not sure if they're ever going to get to the issue of, uh, of the Haredi community being against COVID vaccination, but it hasn't shown up yet. That's Stissel. It's on Netflix. We've also talked about Bloodlands, the thriller about Northern Ireland and Keeping Faith, the thriller set in Wales. Ella Taylor, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. KPFK's general manager is Aniel Zuberi Fields. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.